Our guest today is David DeLugas. He graduated from the esteemed Duke University. He is a trial attorney with expertise in constitutional and family law. In addition, he's also licensed to practice law in the state of Georgia, as well as appear before the Supreme Court. Now, if that wasn't enough, David is also the founder of Parents USA. Now, Parents USA's core objective is to preserve and support the child-parent relationship. And uh, one of the ways they do this is by advocating for the rights of parents as protected by the United States Supreme Court. Now, ultimately, through strategic litigation, through education and through lobbying, their goal is to reshape U.S. public policy to be more in alignment with your rights as a parent. Enjoy the podcast. We're all set. So again, David, I just want to say thank you again for for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's, it's good to call you a friend at this point, and I love all the amazing work you're doing. That's why I wanted to have you come on. Um, so in your own words, can you please uh, just introduce yourself and also talk about Parent USA, um, all the amazing work that Parent USA is doing, and uh, we can delve into more uh, more topics about your background. Sure, sure thing, Michael. And uh, first, it's a huge compliment to be called your friend, and uh, I share that sentiment. It's uh, it's that. nice to continue to get to know you better uh, personally, business wise, uh, and uh, I appreciate your thoughts on Parent USA as well. Well, I'm David DeLugas. I'm an attorney, uh, practice law, make a living, going along with uh, what everybody does who's an attorney, just making a living, serving my clients, right? <laughs> Doing good things. And uh, around 2011, I started noticing how often judges controlled, dictated, and decided so many things about individuals and their kids. And they did it often so differently than a different judge would do. And they did it, what I often thought was in violation of what the law said they should be able to do. But hey, they're the judge. They can do whatever they want. And your only recourse, if you're in front of them as a parent, is to appeal because you're stuck. Uh, as an attorney, I noticed it more and more and more. And I thought there really ought to be uh, a civil rights for parents organization. And so I did a lot of research. I, I am one of those who believes uh, there are so many wonderful nonprofits around the country in so many areas of society dealing with different issues from animal shelters to domestic violence to poverty issues, um, criminal injustice that we unfortunately face in our country all too often. I didn't want to just be another organization and there's another 20 of them doing the same thing purportedly. Uh, I happen to think from a business point of view, that's pretty inefficient. Uh, I was shocked to learn that there isn't an organization who looks out for parents' rights in the manner that I viewed it, which is I'm not trying to push my view of parenting on anybody. What I want to do is create a boundary or push back against the intrusion that so often comes 
from, again, our legal system, from the laws the legislatures pass around the country, from appellate courts that decree certain things, and from all these so-called well-meaning agencies that get up in people's lives way beyond what they should. And in our society, too, and the media occasionally uh, gives notice of, hey, this happened. What do you think? And uh, one of those stories I'll, I'll mention in a moment was a case that, that we handled years ago. And so I actually contacted, and here's a, uh, and I have no association with them formally. It's called the Institute for Justice. It's in Washington, D.C., and their mission statement is simply they're there to protect the constitutional rights of Americans. And they do. They're a fabulous organization and they do a lot of great work. But after I inquired, they were not interested in growing that portion of their work that had to do with families and parents' rights. They, they get involved in school choice and issues like that that touch on parents, of course, but they didn't want to do the kind of work I wanted to do. So in my opinion, I had to form an organization to do so. So the National Association of Parents was born. It's a 501c3. Uh, we go by DBA Parents USA, which is who we are. And we represent the interests of parents and their children uh, using the U.S. Supreme Court decisions. Again, as a society, the USA, we're more or less either we ride on the shoulders of the opinions of the U.S. Supreme Court or we don't like them, but that's what we have. Um, we can try to change that, that, but it's not that easy. Three branches of government and right. legislatures and all. I mean, it's a long discussion. So my view was, let's go with what the U.S. Supreme Court says on parents' rights. And if only organizations around the country, law enforcement from the police officer on the street through the court system, if they would just follow those, it'd be better for kids and their parents. And so. As an example of an early case we handled is um, I saw the mugshot of a woman who was on vacation in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and here's her mugshots in the newspaper. It's on the digital edition of USA Today. It's being widely spread around. What heinous crime did this woman commit or is she accused of committing? Well, it turns out she had rented a, a vacation unit on the beach in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, she had her kids with her, and she left them to go to a restaurant to pick up food to go. Well, this was pre-pandemic, so now it might not be such a big deal. But at the time, about six years ago, it was a huge deal because a stranger saw her nine-year-old walking the family dog and stopped to help him get the dog back on the leash and um, asked where his mother or father was. And the kid was a little evasive. Next thing you know, the stranger trying to be helpful, at least in his mind, calls the police. The police show up, uh, learn that the mother's not there, and they wait for her to come back and arrest her and charge her with two counts of child endangerment under Delaware law. Now, I read this and I go, yeah, just like I assume most Americans would. There has to be more to the story than that, right? Right? Well, I know that arrest records are public records. And so I get in touch with the Rehoboth Beach Police Department and ask for a copy of the incident arrest report. And I read it. And it's literally what I just shared with you. 
And I find the woman and I get in touch with her and I say, look, Parents USA is offering to represent you pro bono, no charge, because we think your rights as a parent were violated when they intruded on your decision to go get food to go from a restaurant and have your children stay at the condo or even go walk the family dog. By the way, I also looked up the law in Delaware on child endangerment. And if you accept what the police officer wrote in his report as absolutely true, compared it to the law, she isn't in violation of that law. She should never have been arrested. As is anecdotally and side note is, I called Rehoboth Beach, which has a boardwalk similar like Atlantic City or places in um, you know, Hermosa Beach, California, or elsewhere. And one of the businesses at the beach was a bicycle rental place. And I, I just, as a hypothetical, I called and I said, hey, you guys rent bicycles, right? I go, I'm thinking of coming there on vacation with my young children. And I wondered if I took a book to the beach and sat on the beach and read that book, could I rent bikes for my kids, say eight, nine years old, to ride along around on their own? And they go, oh yeah, heck yeah, I'm looking out the window now. I see kids, all, all a bunch of kids going up and down the boardwalk. I also called the school district in that area and I asked, um, how does a kid get to your elementary school? And the answer was, if they live within a mile of our school, we don't provide transportation. The parents either have to, they either walk to school or the parents have to get, uh, drive them or they ride their bicycles. I go, oh, thanks. I said, is there a bike rack outside of your school? They go, oh yes, a number of our students ride their bikes to school. Meaning they're on their own, right? I mean, in every other way, I'm learning that in that area, of Delaware, kids are by themselves at different times right. and parents aren't getting arrested. Arrested for it. Yeah. So I file a, the, those viewers watching this may not know this, but when attorneys begin to represent a person and there's some formal proceeding going on, a court case, you file a piece of paper called an entry of appearance. This is my name. I'm an attorney and I'm representing this person. Now I wasn't licensed, still I'm not in Delaware and there's another issue about licensing and government and such. But I actually had to hire a lawyer locally to be local counsel while Parents USA, through me, entered an appearance on behalf of this mother. Two days later, the state dismissed the charges. Wow, two days later. Two days later. Now, the analogy for those who probably are more in tune with what we see in the criminal justice system is people who are charged with crimes. Maybe they're guilty, maybe they're not, but they're given a public defender because they don't have a lot of money. And the prosecution has charged them with a crime that if they go to trial and they lose and they get convicted, they're going to jail for 10 years or five years, right? But the state offers them a deal. We will plead negotiate with you. And if you plead guilty, will offer you 12 months of jail time, suspended, uh, you only serve two weeks and you're on probation for a year. Or you can go to trial and maybe risk five years or 10 years in prison, right? Yeah. It's the bully criminal justice system. Look, I am all pro, let's all follow the law, let's not hurt other people. But the reason I give that analogy is we're charging a mom for going to get food to go from a restaurant because some police officer and then some magistrate who signed the arrest warrant 
said, oh, yeah, you can't be doing that. And by the way, no child was hurt and things of that nature. So since then, we've had a number of, of cases similar to that, a mandatory education laws. If you really analyze it, they're not mandatory education. There's nothing in the law that says your child has to learn. It's your child has to show up. They're mandatory attendance laws. And it's all tied to the money the school district gets when they have a certain number of students who attend a certain number of days a year. Right. But if you're the parent and your child misses school, you have to justify, you have to give them an excuse. It has to be a note from a doctor or some excuse that they'll accept. And if they don't accept it, at least in most jurisdictions, and you exceed the number of quote unquote unexcused absences, because your note as a parent is insufficient, you can actually be arrested, charged with a crime, go to jail, oh. pay a fine. So I re represented a woman who's honor student in fourth grade, was sick, but not so sick where she wanted, again, pre-pandemic, wanted to take him to the doctor just to get a note. Incidentally, doctor's offices don't want parents bringing their kids to the pediatrician just to get a note for school because that subjects that child to being exposed to whatever else is going on in the waiting room. And the wait kids in the waiting room are getting exposed to whatever else this child has, right? So it, it's a real disconnect between our school districts and parents where my position and Parent USA position is if the parent knows the child is missing school and verifies it, and the child isn't just flunking out and the parent is somehow enabling the child to flunk out of school, then the school shouldn't care whether if, if the student's a B student, A student, C plus student, and they miss a lot of days of school, but the parent knows they're missing school, maybe they're helping out with a sibling at home. Maybe they're helping out with one of the parents who has a home-based business. Maybe the car broke down and they missed the school bus. There's a lot of reasons kids miss school or don't get there. Don't punish the, the parents and arrest them. And they do get arrested. That's, that's what actually flips me out at times. It's like, really? We're going to take parents and put them in handcuffs and shackles and put them in jail and fingerprint them and book them because their kid missed too many days from school. And oh, by the way, their child is excelling in school right. because of a law. Those are the places where we want to push back because that doesn't seem to comport with, again, the U.S. Supreme Court's position on the rights of parents to decide for their children. Um, short version of the U.S. Supreme Court is, as long as you're not causing your child actual harm defined by the Supreme Court as long-term emotional harm or physical harm, then it's up to the parents to decide. Incidentally, in the current environment, one of those issues that's coming up, uh, and it's going to be up there for litigation most likely, is whether the government can mandate that your child has to get a vaccination or that your child, against the parent's wishes, uh, can get an authorized consent to a, a doctor to get a vaccination, which is a real interesting legal issue and actually a family issue is children who we don't entrust to smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, drive a car, uh, do a, a thousand things, can't get a tattoo without parent uh, consent. And even at certain age, it, you, a parent can't consent to their child drinking alcohol, not legally, or smoking cigarettes or driving a car and other things. But somehow we're now going to authorize kids to who lack the judgment 
to make all those other decisions about their life. We're going to authorize them to make decisions about vaccinations, whether it's COVID-19 or in California, uh, other vaccinations. And and we're not, as an organization, certainly anti-vax. We're we're all pro-parents making the decision. uh, And if it's based upon the notion that parents are hurting their children by not getting them vaccinations, I'm all for it. Let's litigate that issue. And if the, the evidence is there that it's harmful, then the parents can be compelled and government does have the right to intervene. So it's not a parents can do anything they want uh, is not our position at all. We just want to at least be the pushback against the over intrusion. Heck, right now I'm representing a mom who during the pandemic was home from work. She was told by her work, don't go to work. But after a few months, uh, was told, hey, we're going to open for half a day. If you want to come in, we'd like you to come in. So she did. Childcare was impossible to find. She had a 14-year-old and other younger children. So she put her 14-year-old in charge of her younger children. And her four-year-old son left the house, went to the next door neighbor, didn't get hurt, was just looking for his playmate buddy who lived next door. The mom living next door, we can speculate as to why, but she called the sheriff's office instead of saying, hey, you need to go back home to your house and go over and would have encountered the 14-year-old girl and said, you missing a kid? Oh yeah, sorry, he got away. Thank you for bringing him back. But she called the sheriff's office and this mom got arrested and charged with reckless conduct uh, under Georgia law. And that the prosecutor, this happened in May of 2020, and the prosecutor in Union County, Georgia, I'll call him out on it, is pushing this case forward. And I have a motion to quash pending. Uh, Parent USA is representing her pro bono. Uh, it's just what we do. And uh, we received some publicity and therefore some donations came in to this 501c3. Let me right. toss that out. We're a 501c3. But it just seems absurd to me that in Georgia and in other states, um, the various agencies have guidelines that say, oh, children 12 and up can babysit and supervise other children for up to 12 hours at a time. And if those guidelines exist, then why shouldn't a parent be allowed to have her own child care for, 14-year-old care for a younger child? They're inconsistent. And the fact is, and unfortunately, too many in our society know this truth, law enforcement can do just about anything they want, and we have to respond to it. Um, Prosecutor's office, they can do pretty much anything they want, and we have to defend against it. It shouldn't be that way. Across the board, we should all be acting uh, more fairly, more honestly, more transparently, uh, and of course, those who are on law enforcement and prosecutor side in a case like this one would go, oh, but she violated the law. No, she didn't. So give it up, let it go. But boy, it's like a bulldog. They just, maybe a tarantula. What's, wait, um, the reptile that won't let go, a guillemot monster? Yeah. Guillemot. Hawk on, yeah. It's yeah. like they'll lock on and God forbid that they will ever go, you know, we are wrong in this case. Let's we're going to dismiss it. Sure, it's a shame. Yeah, that's amazing. I I do want to so much to touch on, and I want to you know get into your childhood and growing up, um, and how you progressed through life. But before that, I'm just 
curious about even this case because we hear often about cases where somebody gets unjustly arrested and it still has to go through the court process, right? So in this case of, of the lady with the child, with the four-year-old who wandered into another neighbor's house and what she's being charged with, does a judge, is it at the judge's discretion if the case is, is thrown out or does it have to go through the court process um, to get to the point where she's found not guilty? Because in a case like that, and even the one you mentioned earlier with the other lady, Mm -hmm. It has to be a point where the judge sees it and says, okay, this, this case, she should not be charged with this type of this crime or with negligence. Mm -hmm. So is it the, is it the judge's discretion or does the judge still have to let it just play out? Well, the simple answer to your question is it can be at the judge's discretion, but the, the explanation of how that process works is first of all, the defendant, the person charged with the crime has to uh, know to say uh, this charge doesn't meet the, the criteria of the, the law that I'm accused of breaking, which is our motion to quash, for example. And then it puts the issue in front of the judge and the judge can make that decision. But here's the reality check. Our society, whether it's judges who are appointed or judges who are elected in different jurisdictions around the country, they either appoint or they elect their judges. Um, very often, because that whole I'm, I'm um, tough on crime in the election process, I'm tough on crime, vote for me, or I'm tough on crime, governor, please appoint me, is means that quite often judges are former assistant district attorneys or former district attorneys. And they're tough on crime. So although, for those who know our constitutional makeup of the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, the prosecutor and law enforcement are part of the executive branch of government. The legislature passes the laws, and the judiciary is supposed to be neutral in enforcing the laws or processing the cases where somebody's accused of breaking it, and being fair about their handling of that. And the reality is that the judges often take the view of, hey, it's not for me to decide whether this defendant committed the crime or not. I am only here, ever, most people probably heard of this, at least from TV shows and movies, is there probable cause? Is there some reason that we can say, yeah, maybe they're guilty of the crime, and now it's up to the jury to decide? If you come before me and don't have a jury and I'm given the evidence and we have the trial, then I'll decide. But I'm not going to summarily kick this out just because on the surface it sounds odd to me, right? Unless there's a, a literal challenge like I am currently doing. And by way of further explanation in this particular case in Union County, Georgia, in 1997, a mother entrusted her five-year-old with his half-brother who was 12. And she and her boyfriend went out for the evening. And while gone, the five-year-old died while in the care of the 12-year-old. And the mother was charged with reckless conduct under the exact same statute 
as this mother in Union County is being charged. And in 1997, the Georgia Supreme Court ruled that one, reckless conduct isn't specific enough to describe for a parent, hey, you can't leave your young child in the care of an older child. It's too ambiguous. Secondly, it allows too much discretion for law enforcement to decide whom to arrest. I'm going to arrest you because I think what you just did was reckless and endangered someone else, even if they didn't get hurt. Right. So this US Supreme, or the Georgia Supreme Court said, um, didn't say that the law was unconstitutional, but it was unconstitutional as applied to a parent who leaves their child with an older child when the older child doesn't have any known deficiencies. If the older child was, let's say, intellectually, emotionally, or physically incapable of caring, caring for a young child, that would be, that would be considered reckless, right? But if the 12-year-old in the case before the Georgia Supreme Court or the 14-year-old in our case, there's no reason to believe that they're unsafe. Uh, going, the younger child's going to be unsafe in their care. Right. That's not a crime. And so the Georgia Supreme Court said in spite of the tragic outcome in their case, they gr said the trial court made an error when it denied the motion to quash mm. the accusation, right, which is what we're doing. So I cite that case. In fact, in this case, the mother happened to have known about Parents USA, reached out to us before she got arrested. I found that particular Georgia Supreme Court case, made a PDF copy of it, the opinion, and sent it to the magistrate court judge who issued the arrest warrant and to the sheriff's department who were on their way to arrest her and said, don't arrest the, this mom, wait. And, you know, process this case and think about it and they arrest her anyway and now in spite of the fact that they know about this case they're still pursuing it and the judge is like well you guys need to write a brief and you know cite some law and tell tell me more about why i should or shouldn't dismiss um this accusation against this mother under these circumstances even though the george supreme court would appear to have right ruled on the exact same case but even worse, right? A younger oh, child, yeah. child died. Um, it was a half brother, so he wasn't as familiar with the. Didn't live, didn't even live with the five-year-old, but was brought by the mother to care. Um, a lot of different things that make that case less. Yeah. Anyway, um, it, so yeah, it goes back to literally what we do. Um, and we get requests for help every day, and we're just unfortunately not funded enough to respond uh, in every case to, yes, we'll look into it, and yes, we'll help you out. But in the cases we select are the ones where clearly no child was, was uh, hurt or endangered in a literal sense. And while parents can disagree with one another, and it's one of the things I often describe it as, parents can disagree with one another about what's best for their child and what might be safe or not safe. I mean, some parents say, oh, don't play tackle football. Other parents would say, oh, gosh, I would never let my child, you know, go on an overnight camping trip with friends, depending on the age or where they're going. Um, and that's fine. And when your in-laws or your own parents, say the grandparents, turn to you and go, oh, my gosh, don't do that. You as a parent can then turn uh, and smile and go, oh, Thank you for your thoughts. Oh, I'll give that. I'll consider that. Meanwhile, internally, you're saying to yourself, 
shut up, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. Um, butt out. But you can't do that with people who have guns and badges and summons and warrants and and can mess with your life as law enforcement and prosecutor's office and judges can. So, you know, we want to allow parents to be able to say to their in-laws and their own parents and to their nosy neighbor uh, who say, why are you letting your kid run around in the front yard in only a diaper? You know, put some clothes on that kid. Shut up. Leave me alone. Right. But you can't say that to the, the, the police officer or others. Right. And you should be able to. You should be able to say, sorry, not your kid. He's not in danger. He's not being hurt. Leave me alone. Um, so we're trying to help bridge that gap. Now, it does affect people of color, uh, people in lower socioeconomic classes more so than elsewhere, because the latitude given uh, is it, just different because that's a reality of our society. Right. It's not a good reality, by the way. It's something that I, I believe anecdotally is improving. Um, but it is difficult. I mean, there's the mom who got arrested when looking out the window of her second floor apartment, she could see the playground where her child was playing. And her child was in the play inside a fenced in playground playing. And she got a call from Child Protective Services like, in, you're, you're in danger. So we're doing a home study. Um, <clears throat> we made the news with uh, around the country a number of years ago, parents in Silver Springs, Maryland, the METIVs, M-I-E-T-I-V, um, very responsible parents, drove their children to a park one mile from their home. And one, think about it, people walk a mile in the neighborhood just to get exercise. One mile away on a Sunday, said be back by six o'clock before dark, walk on the sidewalk. And they drove, the parents drove back home and the children were walking home from the park as they were told to do on a sidewalk when a police officer, and thankfully it was a real police officer, not a fake one trying to kidnap them, pulled up and asked them what they were doing. They said walking home and police officer told them to get in the car, drove them back to their parents' house, knocked on the front door, wanted to see ID of the parents to prove they were the parents of the kids, I guess. Um, and from there, it went into a child protective services home investigation oh because they were neglectful. And their attitude was, no, we were the opposite of neglectful. We were responsible in driving them there, saying, make sure you get home by a certain time, walk on the sidewalk, et cetera. They weren't in danger. Why are we going through this? And the initial finding was child neglect. This wasn't a criminal charge. This is child protective services, child neglect. So we appealed it and then they reversed it and decided, no, it wasn't child neglect. Wow. But the parents had to go through that process. They had to go through it and be accused of. Um, and these were strong. And you know, we all as individuals, not just parents, but everybody, we, we differ in our ability to tolerate having other people tell us how bad we are, how wrong we are. I mean, think about being scolded by somebody, scolded by somebody in a position of authority, somebody who presumably knows better than you know and telling you what you're doing wrong. And it involves your, you're being told you're a bad parent. For some people, parents, they would be, oh my gosh, and they'd feel terrible about it and crushed. These parents were upset and mad and, and pushed back and found us and we stepped up. Uh, but as I say, it, it, it's a systemic problem. And one of the issues, because certainly some viewers 
of this podcast or listeners to uh, the podcast could be thinking, yeah, what's the big deal? Well, here, let me give you a, another reason why this is a big deal. For every minute of a child protective services representative agent who is involved in a home study on parents who told their kids to walk home from the park, that person is not investigating the case where there was an anonymous call coming in about a child who with who's being beaten by his parents or an uncle or being sexually abused. We have finite resources in our country. And the more resources that we can devote to looking out for kids who are really in danger or being hurt, we ought to do that and quit worrying about these parents who aren't doing anything wrong that even deserves a minute. Hey, when the mother in Union County, Georgia was arrested, had three deputy sheriffs at her house. Three. Right? Three. Why? Those three deputy sheriffs were not out on the, on the street preventing crime or looking for a fugitive who actually needed to be found and arrested. They're worrying about arresting this mom whose, whose child was unhurt and was being babysat by his 14-year-old sister. We're wasting resources and I, I frankly don't understand the allocation of resources by the sheriff in that county or by the Rehoboth Beach uh, Police Department or by the court systems. I mean, every day, court systems and government keeps asking for more money. We need more money. We're, we're you know, so we're at capacity <laughs> everywhere we go. We you know, we need more bailiffs for the courtroom. We need more judges. They process all our, hey, if you quit arresting people for stupid stuff, and people may differ about our views of this, but, and I'm, I almost should apologize in advance, but I, I think of the nonviolent, um, nobody getting hurt. There's no victim crimes that, re, that draw so much law enforcement and prosecutor and courtroom attention you know, that we just need to stop already, you know, stop already. So um, if it sounds, and you asked me to, to sort of go into how did, how did I get here? Um, well, it's like a lot of people, I think I was directed uh, and I love my parents and they're both deceased, but they, they did a good job for parents who had no education and didn't have um, high earnings capacity. My dad was in the U.S. Air Force, and my mom was pretty much a stay-at-home mom until she started selling cosmetics um, and a home-based business. Um, but they were really um, emphasized getting an education and going out and making a living because, you know, m money makes you happy, right? And those of us who are, are thinking about it understand, yeah, money isn't going to make you happy, but it maybe provides for nicer things. Right. Uh, but I'm practicing law, representing clients, making a living and thinking, I, I, I have the ability to do more than that. And, and I should. So this is my um, tip of the cap to um, doing more with what I've been given and uh, trying to help more. And, uh, you know, we, we count on the donations from people who find our work to be appropriate and you know, there are 140 million parents in America, and we just need to have more parents become aware of our existence, sure. and the work we do, and, and the cumulative impact. Uh, at some point, without sounding too radical and over the top, 
um, I want to go after all the police officers and prosecutors are almost, you can never get past um, absolute immunity of prosecutors. So suing them is just not currently helpful. Judges, same thing. You can't go after judges. But those who go out and arrest people where there's truly not probable cause, notwithstanding the arrest warrant, I can go into the details, but I don't think I need to. It's We need to go after organizations and agencies and sue them and try to have them start reflecting on the decisions they're making before they involve themselves in people's lives in such a negative way. And the other is, I want to call upon the governors in their various states, the governor of Maryland in the case of the Meatives and their kids walking home from school in Delaware and in Georgia and say, hey, can we get you to call upon the agency heads and have them direct their resources that the legislature is allocating to them in the budget and make sure they don't waste any of that on these areas where no child is hurt, no child's at risk. Uh, so, but for us to have influence to be able to impact the governors of these various states and the agency heads, we just need to be bigger and, and more powerful. I mean, I don't need to list them, but everybody that that is paying attention to America knows there are certain organizations in the U.S. of A only because of their size, the number of members and the amount of money they have that have influence. Too much influence, some maybe, but they have influence. And uh, we want to have that influence on behalf of parents, knowing, again, our mission isn't to help parents be better parents. We just hope every parent avails themselves of all the information out there that's available, whether, by the way, a plug for an no formal relationship, but allprodad.com and imom.com put out some great free emails for parents, just tips and ideas and things to say and things to do, not do. Um, I commend. So in other words, we're not trying to help parents be better parents. There's so much information out there. Hey, anybody just wants to be a good parent, just read up on it and put your heart into it and make the effort. We're there to make sure as you do that and make those decisions People in power don't bother you inappropriately and illegally, wrongfully. That's, that's just where we're going. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you mentioned earlier that your, your, your dad was in the Air Force and your mom started, started her own cosmetics business. So how was it like growing up for you? Uh, first of all, how was it like growing up in general? Yeah. And where did you grow up? And how, how did it feel growing up in that environment where um, a parent owns a business. So at a young age, you're um, subconsciously being taught, okay, you know, having your own business is a possibility for you. And then also having a father who was in the military and having that, uh, that strong father figure. Uh, so how was how did all that kind of shape you um, as you were growing up? Um, well, I'm going to debunk the notion that my mother had had a business and that somehow turned me on to the idea of uh, her own business. Yeah. It, it was a, um, a Japanese cosmetic company a lot called Polo, okay. it was Pola, P-O-L-A, uh, along the lines of the Avon lady. In other words, you know, invite others in, have coffee and try to sell them cosmetics. Right. So, but the, at, in that era, it was mom needed to be home when the kids left for school and returned from school. And, um, and we had a lot of attention. My brother, I have one sibling, he's two years older, he's my brother. And my parents, my dad was orphaned early on, um, was in a foster home, 
ended up running away as a young teenager, living on the streets. Uh, you know, the stories that that parents sometimes tell their kids exaggerating. My my dad didn't exaggerate his story uh, when he talked about, um, and this may just seem incredible to some who are listening and watching, but he told me the story of, oh yes, we would take an old car tire and cut it out in the shape of a foot and using rope, that would be a sandal or a shoe. Oh. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. Because at least I in the home where I was with my parents providing, and he was an enlisted person in the U.S. Air Force, and we had food, we had housing. I, mean, I didn't understand poverty in, in that way. But then when his foster mother, who I knew as my grandmother, passed away, and I flew to uh, Tucson, Arizona for her funeral, and my dad and I were the two from our family that went, um, and that was in the 80s. It was still, there was no running water where she lived. They collected water off tin roofs into concrete holding tanks. Um, the roads weren't paved in that area. There, there were dirt roads. And her, her um, burial site, it, her grave was dug by shovels, not even a backhoe. <laughs> and we lowered her casket in using straps in the 80s. So oh, I couldn't though. imagine what that was like for my father in the 30s when he was 20s late 20s early 30s when he was growing up there so i it was a an eye opener for me and i had a greater appreciation for why my father had the attitudes he did about education and about material things because he had none he had he had uh, no education and other than learning from reading newspapers and and the like and uh, earned his GED, but my brother is a graduate of Georgia Tech and has an MBA from Wake Forest University. I graduated from Duke University. I have a law degree from UNC Chapel Hill, and no, I don't like the Tar Heels because I was a Duke <laughs> devil uh, as far as rivalries go, uh, but but they did instill uh, in both of us the the work ethic of doing well in school and doing well on everything you do and making the effort and not giving up and not quitting. Um, if we were in, involved, my brother and I were involved in a sport, for example, and we decided for some reason we didn't like it, we had to finish out the season. We didn't have to play the next season, but we had to finish out the season. We didn't get to quit. So those sorts of qualities or attributes were instilled or forced upon us, let's say, and in retrospect, I happen to have a great deal of respect for those and think that they've served me well. Um, mostly, I just think I, I was blessed. And I'm, I, I don't hope this doesn't come across as arrogance. It's just I was blessed with intellect and God gave me that. And again, that's part of why I think I need to give back more because I have, have skills and um, I don't feel like just, just representing clients who are paying me. Sure. is uh fulfilling uh or doing right by the gifts i've been given but my parents yeah my i mean my mom was you know doting and att attentive um the story that i share often uh when it, the topic comes up of a mother's devotion is uh in eighth grade i made the eighth grade basketball team there were 14 kids on the basketball team but the school only had 12 uniforms you know, uh, spoiler, I wasn't one of the top 12 players that made the team. I was 13 or 14. I don't think the other kid and I knew who was 13 and who was 14. But either way, neither of us had a uniform. 
So he shows up at the first game wearing white gym shorts and a white uh, T-shirt. And, and, and just to be clear, who shows up at the first game? The other player without a okay. officially issued uniform. Okay. I showed up in a uniform that was indistinguishable from the school issued uniform because my mother, you know, took notice of what those uniforms look like, bought the materials, cut it out and made me a uniform um, that was indistinguishable. And it's just another indication of as a parent, you can make the effort or not. And every parent gets to decide what they do. But I will tell you, kids remember the messaging is, you know, if um, in the work I do, I often serve as a guardian ad litem. I work with parents and their kids um, in the court system a lot. Uh, a common refrain from parents is how much they love their children. And I, you know, go to whether it's Yoda from Star Wars or Mr. Miyagi from uh, Karate <laughs> Kid, you know, it isn't it didn't what you say, it's what you do. Mm. So you say you love your kid, give them a hug, tell them you love them help them with their homework, quit smoking, quit wasting money in places that don't benefit the family. Um, a lot of different things parents can do. And I encourage everybody to do that. Hey, do that in your relation, your personal relationships. The messaging is not what you say, it's what you do. So Absolutely. in any event, my parents say if, uh, the strongest accolade I could share, uh, shower upon them is um, there was never a question about how much they loved my brother and me. We didn't have much materially because the U.S. Air Force didn't pay much. Uh, but, you know, my parents were in a lawn chair at every, literally every practice that we had, much less game, uh, football and basketball and baseball game that we played. And well, they attended every school play and academic award ceremony. And there were a lot of those. Um, but they were involved. They, they paid attention. Um, and, and yet they weren't overly intrusive. I, you know, they're, they're parents who are in the vernacular helicopter parents. They weren't that. Uh, they encouraged us to grow and, and become our own person. Um, here's a shout out to Lenore Skenazy with um, Free Range Kids and also with uh, letgrow.org. Uh, great organizations. Now, they're in the, the, the arena of helping parents realize allowing your children the freedom to make mistakes, to do things on their own, to take certain risks that are measured risks and reasonable risks is a good thing for kids overall, and you don't need to overprotect your kids. But keep in mind, that's their, their position or view. I personally share that, but as an organization, Parents USA takes the position, it's your right to be overprotective. It's your, it's your right to be risk-taking with your kids. Say, yeah, you, you can go um, depending on what the legal age is, skydiving, or you can go do whatever that activity may be that some parents would be very skeptical about their kids engaging in it. I mean, there's BMX uh, with motors and BMX just bikes. Right. And you can get hurt doing that stuff. And kids are doing it. Heck, it was an Olympic sport this year. I was really both amazed and shocked. But uh, in the Olympics and teenagers were competing. So some parents would be aghast at the notion, oh my gosh, my kid's not going to be doing that. And others would be like, yeah, that sounds like great. Oh, he broke his leg. Yeah, and that, that's not great, but it happens. In any event, letgrow.org is about parents learning the reality of statistics and what dangers children really are in, in various activities and events, including the famous stranger danger. 
Um, but I won't go into that as much as say, but we're Parent USA that says it, it's the right of the parent to make these decisions. So uh, let's let them do that. Absolutely. And then you mentioned earlier that uh, growing up, you didn't have much. So looking back, do you think that contributed to your success? Did, did you, do you think that that kind of drove you to achieve and make sure that when you became a parent, that you take everything that your parent, parents gave you um, and use that to become or to put your kids or child in a better situation than you grew up in? just like your parents put you in a better situation than they grew up in? Uh, I, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, a few qualifiers, though. I would say um, it skewed some of my views um, and, and not in a good way. For, for example, is I graduated from law school on a Saturday in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, on Sunday, my brother, with my brother's help, I packed a U-Haul uh, and he, he drove it part away and I drove it part way and drove my car to St. Louis, Missouri, where I had a job at a law firm. And I went to work on Monday. That's wow. how much time, because the work ethic in my view was I need to be working. They were going to pay me way more money than I ever imagined I could, could get paid. I'm a lawyer now, right? I hadn't yet taken the bar exam or passed it, but they were paying me. So I was going to show up. I wasn't taking days off. I couldn't afford to. Uh, when it came time to study for the bar exam, I wasn't taking time off to study for the bar exam. I was taking the bar review course, but a partner in the law firm told me, insisted I take time off. <laughs> it wasn't a choice I was given. Um, I had to take time off. And yes, I passed the bar exam. Uh, so I'm, there were decisions I made along the way. And then once I had money, frankly, early in my life, and here's Here's the life tip for everybody. And this is totally unrelated to everything else we're talking about is when you're young, don't spend your money, save some money. Don't buy things on credit. Um, of all the things, it was just like, oh my gosh, I can get this and I can get that. And all the bells and whistles and think fancy, shiny things and spending money on things that, that in reality don't have true value in life. Boy, if, if we, if I had learned that earlier, uh, I'd be better off. Um, my son, who's my only heir, would be better off. But hey, I I will say I enjoyed it. Uh, as I get older, I appreciate more and more how um, little some of the material things really contribute to happiness. In fact, sometimes material things can be a a burden to the pursuit of happiness. And you know, it's in the yeah, it's in the what the De Declaration of Independence that we have the, the right to pursue happiness. Um, and sometimes we, I have pursued happiness through relationships, uh, thinking that was the answer and right. pursuing happiness through material things. And uh, so one of the things that I am acutely aware of and, and tried to pay attention, consciously pay attention to is not having my son be the source of my happiness because he doesn't need that burden on him. Wow. Um, and I, I will observe that sometimes parents do that. Um, they do that to their partner. They do that to their child. Um, they, they consider their work uh, the source of their happiness. And that can be, uh, uh, the, at least in my, my view, my experiences, that, that uh, doesn't, doesn't lead you to happiness. Sure. Uh, yeah, I heard a long, long time ago, and, and you know, a little philosophy. 
uh, okay, I, I want to give credit. It, I think it was a, a PhD, Barbara DeAngelis. I'm, I'm thinking that's her name. And she said, happiness is not somewhere that you get where you arrive and you're now happy. It's stringing to gather more positive, uh, good moments in your life uh, than negative ones. Because let's face it, we're all going to have the car that breaks down, the time you forget something, you lose something that you liked or valued, um, you know, your watch or your bicycle or things get stolen from you or this right. happens or that happens or you don't get along with a coworker. There are many things in life. You get an upset stomach, you get sick, you get really sick, you get ill. And during COVID, I, I know of people who have family members that have passed away and people who have gotten become seriously ill, including people who thought early on COVID-19 was a nothing burger. Um, but all of those things help bring us back to yeah, are, are, are you happy or are you not? Well, uh, when people ask me, how's your day or how's your weekend go and things like that, my answer more often than not is it was good. Why? Because there, I ate some tasty food. Uh, <laughs> you know, I uh, saw a couple of games on TV that I enjoyed, caught a movie, spent time with my son, went bike ride. You know, if you have good moments, man, savor and relish them. Don't wait till you're on your deathbed to go, you know what? I lived a good life. No, no, no. You're probably, uh, those of you listening, those of you, without <laughs> sounding too uh, analytical about it. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're watching it, you probably have electricity, you have a device, a phone, a computer. You probably have a little free time because you're taking the time to listen or to watch. If you have that, you have more than most people in society, most people in the world have, Absolutely. Uh, right? So if you can stop and just kind of go, yeah, all these things are good. I want more. It's okay to be ambitious. I want more. I would like a better this, or I want more of that, or you know, I'm a little tight on funds and uh, that, hey, that's fine. It's okay to want more, but don't be unhappy while you are at least living a decent life. Um, be, be appreciative of where you are. At least I've, I think that's really helped my attitude because I'm, I'm pretty, um, you know, like I say, I, I'd say I'm happy with, are there things I would, I would change? Sure. There's, there's a number of things I'd change. Um, but nothing, fortunately, nothing. And it's, you know, I'm very fortunate. Uh, nothing so critical, uh, I guess acute would be the correct word. Nothing at this moment that I go, oh my gosh. No, I, I, I like that. I really like that a lot. I like that because it, it's, 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 parent that you're always in a state of gratitude regardless of what's going on uh, because like you mentioned it's always going to be something that we can complain about right but it's the little things in life that really do matter and oh. uh, you start realizing that when you travel I, I, I travel a lot and um, traveling over the years has made, me real, has made me realize we really do live in a bubble here you know sure. and our perception of because at least for me growing up, I just thought, oh, well, the entire world, the entire world is like the U.S. And that is not the case. Oh, no, no. Um, oh, wait, Michael, I don't mean to interrupt you. Oh, oh I, no. I'm sorry. Yes, I do mean to interrupt you, obviously. <laughs> um, it, even in the U.S., uh, I drove four hours from Metro Atlanta into uh, an area of southeast Georgia called Screven County, uh, because this is where the mother was arrested because her child, honor student child, missed too many days of school. Right. Just that four hour drive, I went through and, and I, 
I've seen rural, but this is rural, rural. I was seeing wow. areas of, of the state of Georgia where I'm thinking there is nothing here. I ain't nothing. And the little general store and the little one gas pump and the houses you would see. And it, it made me just realize just the, especially again, if you live in an urban area and you don't get around the country much or you haven't traveled or you go to tourist places. So you don't really see um, now we see it in movies, right? You see a movie and it's some city, some little town in Mexico and right. there's great poverty and they show that. Guess what? That's here in America too. It's in the inner cities. They're in areas of Atlanta that I've driven through. It's like, oh my gosh, this place is, it, it looks like it's abandoned, but it's not. It looks like um, a war zone, but it's not. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, but yes, if you travel internationally and I know in the last few years, people haven't traveled much um as i look the the test to me is starts with this if you and any of your friends or you and your partner or your family or your children are discussing where you're going to go eat dinner or lunch right in any food if the question is where and there's more than one option you're living a good life because you're just choosing like well, do we go to restaurant A or restaurant B? Well, I had, you know, I had that earlier this week and I, I want something different. Right. That, you know, if you're not thinking what dumpster do I need to go delve into in order to find some scraps of food behind the restaurant so that maybe I can sustain myself again, if you're, I, I, I'm not trying to put it on people, but look, if I can help, one other individual go you know what i'm not my life's not as bad as i've been thinking it is um no i agree i agree a thousand percent i love i love that you're conscious in that sense um to be always you know be present and and always appreciate everything that you have access to no matter what's going on around because it's like you said earlier it's always going to be white noise and life happening around us but even with that there's always something to be you know thankful for so i so i love your perspective on that uh, and I want to also touch on uh, your life around a time where you got accepted to Duke University. So at the time when you were going to Duke or when you were about to start um, going to Duke, did you already have an idea of what you wanted to do in life? Did you already, were you already attracted to the idea of working in the justice system or working in law? Or is it something that you stumbled across um, after or during your schooling at Duke? Well, I'm going to just be honest about it. It's um, from early on, I, I was what I now characterize as a lazy person. Okay. That, that may not seem appropriate, all things considered, but through high school, I rarely ever studied, but I had good grades. Yeah, I was that kid that I, most of you watch didn't like because it's like, ah, you know, he's like, yeah. So out of high school, uh, I had a scholarship to go to Cornell. I had an appointment to West Point and an appointment to U.S. Naval Academy. And I was on the wait list at Duke. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm like, what? That's um, <laughs> yeah. Take, taking SAT and stuff like uh, those were, again, to me, it. I'm not bragging. I'm just the reality is I ne I never found any of those standardized tests hard. None of them. 
So I did really well on those. Don't know why, but I just did. Again, I don't get, I don't want to even take credit for that. It's just a gift. I, some athletes can do amazing things and, and so the practice and the dedication to hone their craft. Sure. But the initial starting point for those athletes are they were really fast or they're really good eye hand coordinate. You know, they're really tall or whether they're really heavy or whatever it is, they're a gifted athlete to begin with. So I had gifts and I had to hone them. So actually I chose the U S Naval Academy because uh, unlike West Point, I could wear my contact lenses at Annapolis. And unlike Cornell in Ithaca, New York, and I did spend a summer there during high school, I, I just decided I couldn't, couldn't stand the cold of Ithaca, New York in the winter, uh, upstate New York. So I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. But notice I graduated from Duke. So how that come about? Um, the short version is while at the Naval Academy, I was confronted with and I grew up in a military family, but I was, the reality is somebody who's one year, two or three years older than I am, in spite of the lack of, at least from my point of view, um, qualification, respect, or intellect that they possessed, they had rank on me and therefore they could tell me what to do. And by God, I had to do it right then and there. And, and I endured all that and did all that and excelled. And, and then I encountered an injustice, um, while I was there. And I took umbrage at the idea of, wait a minute, why am I having to go march early in the morning and do, do get the merits? Uh, this, is, this is not just, this is not fair, this is not right. So a sense of what's fair and what's right and what's just was part of my makeup. And so my attitude was I can go to pretty much any of the nicer or, or better universities in the country. So I left and ended up going to Duke and graduating from Duke, uh, where I was a cheerleader and enjoyed a less than um, robust basketball um, team, unlike it has been for the last 40 years, just giving my age away, with Coach uh, Krzyzewski. Um, but it also contributed to, and this, I, I don't know if I shared this story with you before, Michael, but it, it involves um, um, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, so I, I kind of like now telling it. So I'm coming out of Duke and I'm applying to law schools and I applied to Duke's law school, excellent law school. And I had a, again, I do standardized tests very well. I had a really high LSAT um, and at a 3.0 GPA at Duke. Now remember what I said earlier about being lazy? I never went to class at Duke either and I had a 3.0. So I get a rejection letter from the Duke Law School admissions and um, I knew the dean of the law school, who was very active in Duke athletics. Uh, I, I was then a senior at Duke and a cheerleader. So I made an appointment. I met with Dean Pye, P-Y-E. And I, I asked him, I said, uh, Dean, I don't understand how it is I didn't get admitted. I'm undergrad. I'm a cheerleader. I have a 3.0, 99 percentile LSAT. And he looked like a truck driver with the ball cap on and he, he didn't look like an academian, but man, what a brilliant guy. And he wagged his finger at me and he said, well, son, that 3.0 tells me you're lazy because with that LSAT, you should have a 3.8. So uh, you obviously are lazy and son, we don't let lazy people into my law school. I'm like, man. Wow. Now fast forward uh, about 35 years, I'm at the U.S. Supreme Court being admitted to the U.S. Supreme Court to practice before it. 
And uh, being from Georgia with other Georgia lawyers being sworn in, we have a little reception with uh, Justice uh, Clarence Thomas, who's from Georgia. And he tells a story about how uh, when he was in a Catholic school, I believe it was a Catholic school, as a youngster in St. Mary's, Georgia, he wasn't doing well. And one of the sisters chewed him out and told him how he was clearly bright and he was just not applying himself and he needed to work harder. And that fueled him to do better. And it led to his academic success and eventual path up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So when I had, he told that to the whole group. And when I had a moment, a picture op and I'm a photo op getting my picture taken and I had a minute with him, I quickly told him the story I just told you about Dean Piewag and his finger and how it related to me or reminded me or his story of it um, being told he needed to do better um, and how that prompted him. It, and he, he, I got a belly laugh out of uh, yeah. Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, and again, people may like or not like Justice Thomas based on his opinions he's written over decades, but it was a moment to have somebody getting a doing a belly laugh to your story about not being admitted to law school. But again, it came out of being lazy and how I got into being a lawyer is, you know, I was going to go to, I did get admitted to Duke's MBA program at Fuqua, their law, uh, their MBA school. Um, but I just thought law would be easier, frankly, and so I went down that path. And then it was, yeah, you're coming out of law school, you need to get a job as a lawyer. So oh, I got a job as a lawyer. And yeah. I, I really, honestly, I was not making decisions looking forward as much as right here, right now, this is what I can do. And it's the path of least resistance. I can you know, go to law school, so I'll go to law school. And I, I took out loans and I, I worked throughout law school, even though you're told not to work. Um, and uh, oh, here's another story uh, anecdote from my my law school days that hopefully will resonate with some and others and will help you stand up for yourself. At our law school, as is true, I guess, of all the law schools, according to the American Bar Association, you could not be considered a full time law student, uh, regardless of how many hours of classes you're taking, if you are working a job more than 20 hours a week. No, you can work, but you can't work more than 20 hours a week. Otherwise, you're considered a part-time student, and you have to be in school, law school, a number of years longer. So I took a job at a college bar in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which, by the way, was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one day I get called into the dean's office where he is telling me, if you I, you work, yes. And you work at this college bar, yes. How many hours a week do you work? Honestly, between 40 and 60, because I'm, I'm now the bar manager. I open it and close it. And yeah, I don't go to many classes, but you know, I'm still doing all right here in law school. And he said, well, here, the rule is that you can't do that, or you have to be a part-time student, regardless of how many hours you take. And you have to now go five years, not three years of law school. I said, well, Dean, let me ask you a question. Just, just curious. Let's say I'm not working at this college bar, but instead, every day when they open, I show up and I stand at the bar and I drink at the bar every night until they close and then I go home and I'm in law school. But that's acceptable because I'm not working mm. and I can graduate on time, right? And he gave me a blank stare for about 15, 20 seconds and then told me to leave and to never mention this again. 
and then I continued working the job. Because to me, it, and that was one of the indications that that's how a lawyer thinks, right? Look, right? Wait, there's something wrong with this. You can't work, but I can drink and stand in the bar every night. Right. That made no sense to me. No logic. Um, and, and the law is supposed to make sense. Over time, it's supposed to eventually make sense and craft into laws that, that make sense with experience. Sure. Human experience. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And at, at what point did you determine what type of law you wanted to specialize in? And was that a tedious process for you or did you just know right away? Uh, again, it was more that uh, I was the ball bouncing around in a pinball machine and wasn't controlling my own destiny very much. Um, I, um, having worked as much as I did during law school, my grades were good, but not great. I wasn't on law review and, and such, but I did manage to get a summer internship at a law firm in St. Louis. Um, and, you know, remember the St. Louis, I'm driving there with, with the U-Haul truck. And it was a very prestigious law firm representing major clients. And the other summer interns were all law review from Harvard and University of Missouri. I got in because I had connections and I knew the son of one of the partners there um, who had graduated uh, from Duke earlier and went on to work there. So I got in under basically double secret probation, like you're not near the qualifications. Uh, you haven't earned the qualifications to get this summer job but we're bringing you in because you're friends with uh, one of the partner's sons. Um, another indication of in society, it's who you know sometimes. And uh, so I worked that summer, but I was told, uh, unlike the other four interns, if um, they were going to get a job offer by the end of the summer for a permanent job offer, as long as they didn't screw up. Mm. I was told I wasn't going to get a job offer unless I proved that my abilities were more commensurate with their academic success rather than my actual academic mediocrity. Um, and during the summer, I was able to show that I had the skill level to uh, work at that high level law firm. And they offered me a permanent job and it was the best job pay wise and prestige wise. So I took it and moved to St. Louis and worked there. And they did litigation, trial work, uh, representing big companies, uh, toxic torts and insurance defense and other things. So I, wow. my skill set, you know, partner said, here, go do this, write this, do this research. And very early was told, go take that deposition and um, or go to this hearing. And that experience was very, very valuable to me. Um, but I ended up moving from St. Louis to Atlanta, um, among other reasons, at a time when St. Louis is in the middle of the country. And uh, again, I'm dating myself, but it was before cable TV had all the basketball games on TV and I was a big sports fan. And it's before deregulation of the airline industry. So flying around was very expensive and couldn't be done. And my family was um, in the Southeast, my brother, my parents, and and uh, I decided I wanted to be Southeast. And the longer I stayed in St. Louis, there's another life tip for the younger people listening is figure out where you want to live and then go there. Um, I love my life now. And I, I love being the dad to my teen son. So I wouldn't change anything. But if I were to do it all over again, coming out of college, maybe I wouldn't go to law school. I'd move to LA and work in the mailroom of a movie studio because I really like the movie industry. I mm -hmm. like to write screenplays or produce movies. Um, 
or get with your closest friends and everybody go to the same place and buy some land and then build houses in the same neighborhood or create a neighborhood uh, because those things are more lasting. Have do, do make more conscious decisions about your life choices than I did. Uh, again, I have been very fortunate in how they've shaken out, um, but I decided I wanted to live in Metro Atlanta. And sometimes I think, man, you know, I, I like the weather in desert Southwest better. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to move. Oh, so the point really is I was in St. Louis and thought to myself, if I stay here any longer, I'm probably going to meet somebody and fall in love and marry them. And I'll never be able to move out of St. Louis. Right. Again, St. Louis is a lovely town, by the way, beautiful town. Awesome. In many respects um, on the, on the Mississippi river, it's hot and humid during the summer, like nowhere else in the world. And in the winter, it was snowy in October. So it gets cold and hot and wet cold. So I thought, I don't know that I want to stay here and I better move. Plus, depending on your profession, mine is one we're building relationship with the clerks, the judges, the, the, the clients that you're going to develop are important. And the longer you stay, the harder it is to leave. So uh, depending on one's career path, uh, get somewhere, put down some roots. So, you know, I've been in Metro Atlanta since 1984. No, that's great advice. That's amazing advice, actually. And then, so when you think about it, from and this is if at all, from when you from when you first became a lawyer up until now, how have you seen the justice system change, if at all? Well, the criminal justice system, because when we use the justice, right. that's really what we mean, I suppose, um, because civil cases impact our lives as well, especially those who breach a contract, sure. family court. But the criminal justice system, um, I, I'd say it's goes back to the root of all evil. I mean, it's money. Uh, it's people, money, and power, and it corrupts. Um, not necessarily literally corrupts, as in that person or that prosecutor or that judge or that law enforcement officer is corrupt. But the focus on the, the the focus on, oh, we have to do this in the criminal justice system or the laws that keep getting added to the books. There are just so many laws. It, it, it's impossible not to break a law, frankly. I mean, it's just tough. The war on drugs, we can all agree, agree to disagree about the benefit to society of the war on drugs, but prohibition didn't work. And the war on drugs hasn't done anything to really help drug use or abuse uh, or the quality of life in society. Um, you know, I've, I've had this discussion with my teen son who doesn't smoke pot <laughs> that I know of. Uh, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But uh, that said is, I said, look, alcohol and pot, for example, um, and I'm not speaking on behalf of parents who will say you want to make any of these statements, um, have some intoxicating or benefits or uh, downsides to the physiologies there, right? So you can drive a car under the influence of something, anything, or you can be on Valium, whatever. If you're less safe to drive and you have an accident, that's, that's very bad. You shouldn't, shouldn't hurt other people, uh, personal injury or property damage. But we as a society just really believe alcohol is an okay substance. They serve it in vast quantities at baseball games this time of year, right? Or all throughout the season and other places. 
and nobody seems to complain about it. Although they go, no, don't drink and drive. Well, you know, don't smoke pot and drive either. Don't um, take prescription medication and drive either if it affects your reflexes or your cognitive abilities. So we should be more in tune with um, outlawing and punishing conduct um, than what we consume. Right. You know, I, I don't want the uh, cake police to pass a law that says you can't have chocolate cake after eight o'clock on a weeknight because right. <laughs> it'll interrupt your sleep or something. So the health police don't need to be there for those reasons. Uh, uh, shoot, I've, I've forgotten, Michael, where you're trying to- No, no, no sure, no, I was, I was just asking um, from your perspective- Oh, crit justicism. Oh, it's- how, so how it it, it's For the better it, or for the worse? Yeah, I think uh, the courts are overwhelmed by the number of cases before it, and it's a factory, it's a mill. Um, I, I will say that on, on the lower court level, say municipal courts that cities have, they're a, I'm sorry, they're just a money-making machine. Uh, it's the, the local police giving citations for anything and everything, mostly traffic violations. And then everyday citizens, okay, they've broken the law, maybe they've broken the law, they've been accused of breaking the law, they had a light out, a tail light out, they failed to turn turn on a turn signal. I see that citation. I can't tell, I haven't gotten it, but um, not signaling a lane change, but you didn't have a wreck, but a police officer pulls you over, gives you a citation. You're now in a city court, city court that the, the city pays the judge, who's a part-time judge, the salary, and the city takes all the money from all the fines it collects. Now it's collecting money from people who can't afford it. Um, some people can just pay the fine and others don't. And when they can't pay the fine, they're put on probation. And then they have a probation, say it's a $100 fine, but they don't have $100. Now they're on probation. They're paying $10 a month with a $20 monthly probation fee. So now their $100 fine turns into $400 that they couldn't afford. And all it's doing is making money. I mean, I would really like to just blow up, no, not, not literally, figuratively speaking, blow up some of our systems and start over like, Okay, what makes sense? How do we process this? How do we handle it? Sure. What do we do? What are the laws that we need to have and don't need to have? And um, um, I mean, is there a person in America driving a car that doesn't speed? Um, and yet you see places where there are literal speed traps. You know, law enforcement with their radar guns out and pulling people over. And I'm thinking, is that really making it safer? Because the minute you try, you quit doing it, everybody's driving the same speed anyway. Um, right, right. So should we revisit all of that and how we go about doing it? And, um, you know, there, uh, I, you know, not to, not, I, I'm not trying to be controversial, Sure. but in the case of Eric Gardner in New York, who was selling individual cigarettes that apparently is a crime. You can't buy a pack of cigarettes. You could give away a cigarette to people, but some people couldn't afford a $10 pack of cigarettes. I don't recall what the price was at the time with all the taxes, but apparently he was buying a pack of cigarettes and then reselling individual cigarettes to people like for a dollar or dollar fifty because somebody didn't have 10 bucks to buy a pack, but they really wanted a cigarette. They'd pay a dollar or whatever. Right. So he's accosted by police officers and you know, we can discuss, argue, bicker about whether or not uh, he should have responded or the police should have. But hey, worst case scenario, hand the guy a ticket like a traffic ticket. You have to go to court. If he tears the 
ticket up and doesn't go to court, maybe something else happens, but just give him a ticket. George Floyd allegedly is passing a counterfeit bill at a like a store. Give him a ticket. You don't have to cuff him and arrest him. Right. I'm not like saying I'm in favor of people doing things that are wrong, like counterfeit or violating the law. I think the law about cigarettes is stupid. Counterfeit, I don't want to receive a counterfeit bill. So I'm okay with, hey, you can't have counterfeit bills. And even if he was, give him a citation, tell him to show up at court in three weeks and answer to a judge. You don't have to take, it's a nonviolent, don't take him in there. We just have so many, because you asked about the justices. Absolutely. It's like, why are we arresting people for things where we don't need, we don't need to arrest I mean, if there's a DUI at a at a um, check stop, not not because of an accident, but um, a roadblock, right? And they're checking registration license, and oh, wait a minute, you've been drinking. You know, if they've been drinking, impound their car, give them a citation, and call them a uh, have them call a Uber or, or Lyft or a family member to come pick them. You don't even have to take them to jail. Don't. I mean, going to jail that's that's for things where you need to be need to be in jail right so but our fascination societal fascination at least segments of our society of hey let's arrest and put them in jail and let's let them bond out and let's the bonding industry is there it's a money-making machine it's a thousand dollar bond i don't have a thousand dollars in cash or property i can put up oh, okay but it'll cost you a hundred dollars plus fees so now it's 150 180 dollars you never get back even if you're innocent, right? So there's so many segments of that whole process that have money associated with it or has, um, look, I, I don't know, maybe I watch too, too much TV, but if a police officer arrests somebody and takes them in, then they get to sit at a desk and fill out the paperwork and be off the street and they're not out there right now. Is that an incentive to arrest somebody and bring them in? Well, maybe it is. Oh, do they get a gold star? Oh, you, you got an arrest today, you got a collar. I mean, I hear that I don't I don't know individuals as much in that area of the law, but maybe maybe we reward that too much rather than why don't we give them accolades? Did you arrest anybody today? No. Good. <laughs> I'll give them a gold star for not arresting someone. Did you stop a crime? Yeah, I, I stopped a crime or I counseled and advised uh, some people about what to do or not do. Um, hey, uh, on that topic there for the justice system. Um, but it relates back to Parent USA. Sure. I was on a podcast, another podcast, and I, I floated the idea that if somebody calls 911 uh, about a child, you know, the bystander who's concerned about the welfare of a child, then there ought to be a triage. The 911 dispatcher should all be trained. 911, what's your emergency? Hey, I'm over at this place and I see a kid and there's no parent nearby. Mm. Well, that doesn't mean you send a police officer. What's the next question? Right. Does the child appear to be hurt? Do we need to send an EMT? Are they hurt? Are they bleeding? Do they have a broken bone? If the caller says, no, they don't seem to be hurt. Do they appear to be in distress? Are they sitting cross-legged on the ground, the hands in their, their, their head in their hands? Are they crying? Are they clearly upset, distraught, lost? in some way in, in in some crisis situation no they're just over there jogging or playing or climbing a tree or something but but they're alone no parents nearby 
are the another question a part of the triage 911 should be trained do they appear to be in imminent danger from some identifiable risk of harm construction site open swimming pool four lanes traffic rushing by <clears throat> the proverbial white van with really creepy looking men with puppies and, and candy hanging out the window calling to that kid, right? No, they don't seem to be in imminent harm from an identifiable risk of harm. Thank you for your call. If we have an available officer, we'll send them by to check on them, right? So that's what I said during the podcast. Right. One of my most satisfying moments was reading some comments after the fact where an Indianapolis police officer commented, I'm glad I listened because I, after that incident, after listening to you, I came upon some teenage boys and no adult was around. My normal process would have, put, have been to put them in the car, drive them back to their parents' house and make sure that they were quote unquote safe. Right. This time I rolled up, I rolled down my window, just called out, hey guys, how's it going? They said, fine. What are you doing? Hanging out? Cool. Y'all have a good day. Be safe. And I left because there was really nothing police-wise for me to do. I, I read that and I went, that's how it should be every time. Every situation needs to be more like that. The police encounters with our citizenry, maybe fueled by the war on drugs, is police look at everybody standing around as a potential criminal wait a minute, that person's standing over there. Are they loitering? Are they carrying drugs? Are they ready to make a deal? Are they, are they armed? Are, are they carrying a weapon they shouldn't have? All these questions are running through law enforcement's mind. And, and again, I'm not in that arena, so I don't know. Maybe it depends on the part of town you're in. But if, if as a society, we are suspect of everybody, particularly people of color, they're wearing a hoodie or they're not wearing a hoodie. You know, they're a teen black man versus a 45 year old black man, you know, I mean, or half Asian man, you know, I mean, um, I, 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 I want law enforcement to do their job, but could we add a little more common sense and restraint and not every, now granted, look, every encounter maybe needs to be a little more civil in both directions, a little more respectful in both directions. A little more like, hey, what's up, guys? Doing all right? Yeah, man. All right. Rather than the immediate retort being quit hassling me and, you know, throwing up right. all the, it's, I'm not blaming anybody as much as just say, if we could all just chill just a little bit, we might have a more peaceful society. Uh, oh, I, I fully agree with that. I think, I think a big part of the issue, I just love that you just said that, because I think a big part of the issue is accountability from um, the citizens perspective because a lot of times when these things happen it's it's more exciting it's more sensationalizing to to just make it an issue about the cop shooting someone versus asking okay what was the person doing you know i don't condone i don't think anybody should be shot in any situation and it's not our you know it's not our job to decide who dies or who lives that's not our job but I also think is a big part of this that people don't really discuss, which is, you know, people just tend to get excited, for lack of a better term, when a, 
a, a white cop shoots a black person, but what about when a white cop shoots a white person? We should all also be marching because that's also not right. How about when a black cop shoots a black person? Yeah. We should all, right. all be on the streets marching too, right? How about what's going on in Chicago, right? Every weekend. Exactly. We should all be marching. Well, we should all be every, every major city every weekend and every small city exactly. you know, often, too often. Um, look, I, I was I had a conversation with somebody very recently about um, guns in America um, and the, the statistic about how many guns are in America, how much gun violence there is in America compared to other countries. And I said, look, we can't even have a conversation about this unless you're willing to answer a couple of questions and acknowledge a couple of things. I said, based on what you know, and you've never lived in Japan, but and I have, but it's been a long, long time based on just what you believe. When two people in Japan bump into each other out on the sidewalk or in a store or office, what do they do? And his immediate answer was, oh, well, they both are like, oh, I'm so sorry, right? I mean, that's maybe stereotypical for us to believe that. And sure. maybe we're being, you know, bigoted to say that is bigoted the right word, but you know, oh, two Japanese people bump into each other. They go, oh, I'm so sorry, excuse me. No, no, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Two people in America bump into each other and it's like, holy cow, a fight might break out at that very minute um, at, at, for, for what is completely innocent, but it's America. Um, is there a gun available? Okay, well, that's why there's gun. But the starting point is the reaction instead of being like, hey, no worries, man, my bad, and just move on, right? Um, traffic? Road rage? I mean, the idea that something, anything happens while you're driving the car that justifies somebody pulling out a gun. I'm sorry. I didn't disrespect you. I, I may be a horrible driver, but please don't shoot me because I am. Or maybe I was a jerk and I honked my horn. Let it go. I mean, seriously. Um, I read a really tragic story of late where a guy flirted with a girl who rebuffed him and said, Hey, that's my boyfriend over there. And, and the guy was uh, from all reports was, Oh, no. Oh, so sorry. I, I, I didn't know you were with somebody, you know, just lovely. And thank you. And, and he moved on. He moved on. He didn't push it, but the boyfriend did boyfriend came up and confronted the guy. Like, what are you doing? Talking to my girl, this and that, and pulled the gun and shot him, killed him. Oh. And this happened within the last few weeks. Now, you know, that should just never happen. But it is our, you know, obviously if there wasn't a gun, he couldn't have done it. But it's just, as a society, have we gotten to where we accept that people can be that angry, that, res that react in those manners? I mean, that isn't the first time that guy reacted that way. Right. But did he get called out by his friends, by his family? Like, hey, dude, you got a problem. You need to chill out more. You know, didn't, if they're playing a card game or a board game, or you know, somebody says, "Hey, I call shotgun," and he's does he get in a fight with people? That isn't the first time that guy reacted that way. And I'm just going in our society. Are we not calling out people earlier in their lives, younger in their lives, and and letting them know this is just an unacceptable way? of reacting to what you don't like. Sure, no, no, you're right. You're right about that. I, to, to piggyback on what you just said, there was a story about um, uh, a lady that was driving 
And these teenagers apparently mistakenly cut her off or, you know, and she was really upset. She had her baby in the back and she flipped them off. And one of the teenagers was very offended and he got out the car, obviously without thinking, he pulled out a gun. I don't know what city or state this was in and he shot at her. Now she was lucky enough, the, the bullet missed her but tragically hit her baby. Now, obviously that's a insanely terrible situation. Now he has to live with the fact that he killed a baby and she has to live with the guilt of her feeling like she put herself in that situation. If, why did I flip them off? If I didn't flip them off, my baby was to be alive right now. Yeah. So yeah. I say all this to say, to wow. take it back to what you said earlier, which is people just need to chill. You said it, it's so, it sounds so easy, but it really, people just need to, <laughs> to relax. Um, but people are just, you know, we live in a time right now where a lot of people are angry, frustrated. Uh, the pandemic hasn't helped the situation, being locked in the house and so many other things going on, people losing their jobs. Uh, but, you know, I just said all that to say, like, you're right. People just need to take a deep breath and relax um and, no and it's really that simple it's really that simple um i have three more questions for you and then we're gonna wrap this up so the first is i love everything you said earlier about the justice system so we can all agree even we see this in the media all the time the justice system is broken we need to fix it so in your perspective let's say president biden came to you and said david can you please draw up one or two or three key strategies on how we can fix or we can how we can begin to fix the justice system what are one or two things you'd suggest how we can kind of start patching things up and making things better for everybody regarding the just the criminal justice system um i i would say that um every law and honestly this wouldn't be hard because if it was i'm going to uh, I'll get back to answering it oh, by prefacing it with this. Take your time. If our criminal justice system was a corporation, they would bring in corporate consultants and audits and this and that, right? I think we need to do an audit uh, and have consultants whose incentive is to make it work better. Look at every single law on the books like could we not start this way all right in each jurisdiction let's list every criminal case you have for the past five years every case what's the particular statute that was allegedly violated that resulted in the criminal charge and now we go okay well there were you know 427,019 cases where this was this law was allegedly broken and keep breaking you know just go all the way down the list and obviously some defendants are accused of more than one crime. Then for each case, go through and go, all right, so what's the benefit to society for this particular statute, this particular law, that so many, that there were 800 or 37 or 370 cases that came through the system provide, do we need that law? How can that law be made to provide us better preventive? Where do we need to go to try to um, 
stem the behavior or the attitude or the values that lead to that many violations of the law. I, I've said it for for as and I don't I just don't do drugs, don't kind of understand the desire to use drugs, but I completely understand that people do and have and will always use drugs is um, cutting off the supply or going after drug dealers doesn't end the demand. And everybody that understands supply and demand goes, yeah, it's the demands there. How do we lessen the demand? How do we lessen the desire to, um, to commit a criminal act? Right. And is, should it be a criminal? Yeah, I think we can all agree killing another person unjustly is a criminal act. We should have that law in the books. So, but let's go through all of them. How much of this occupies so much of our legal um, uh, capacity? Right. And, and you know, the tails wagging the dog, there are a lot of expressions, how much money we're spending, how much time, how much energy is being consumed. Um, do, do we uh, have everybody having to live under the same laws? I think that's a big one. Um, you know, how many administrative laws? There, I've read some material, I, I can't really quote from it, but I, that sure. there are so many criminal laws, administrative laws, tax laws, that every one of us at any moment in time is, is uh, capable of being charged, arrested, fined for something, right? Um, everything associated with your car. Are police using traffic stops as a way of trying to determine whether the occupants of that vehicle have committed some other crime because they shouldn't be really be worried about oh you failed to use your turn signal or your tag is expired or you know your tail lights out those aren't reasons to really involve a lot of encounters between law enforcement and the citizens right are police really using that as just a legal means to stop somebody to sniff around a little bit mm. check it out and if so, let's let's think about is that really where we want to be as a society, and does it actually help stem crime? Because again, I'm I'm not an expert in the area of criminal law at all, but it seems if you're asking me what would I do, I I say we need to do an audit. What laws are we doing? How much is this costing us? What's it? What's the payback and all that? I mean, I've been I've been to the courthouse and seen courtrooms just overflowing with people. What are they doing? They're waiting their turn for their case to be called. Mm. Oh, the police officer doesn't show up. Well, your case is continued, ma'am. She's been sitting there all day, missed a day of work. Her kids are with her. You know, she's poor already. And now the officer didn't show up, but you have to come back on another day. And if you don't come back, we're going to issue a bench warrant. I'm not soft on crime. People shouldn't, but we, we have just too many laws and too much enforcement that's going on that seems to be driven by how much how much of a fine can we get hey look it, it's not violent crime but traffic there are intersections around the country with cameras and video equipment right and they capture a license tag video the vehicle that runs a red light or even speeding uh, and mail a citation to the person and if the person can afford it quite often they'll just pay it because it's time is money and so they'll pay it yeah and the other is but if you don't have it you got to go to court and hang around and this and this and that and it's money it's a money generated it didn't, doesn't change behaviors but the key too is this 
the companies that supply the equipment and do the ticketing, they're based in Arizona and Florida, even in Georgia. Because I, I received a ticket, by the way, I'll confess. I received a ticket in the mail and it came from Arizona. And I'm like, Arizona? what? Yeah, the, the, the return address is Arizona. And when I mailed back, yes, I want to come to court and I want to contest this. I had I put a stamp on it and mailed it to a place in Arizona and it mailed me back a court date and time to go to court. But the other part that I've read about, and I would like there to be more scrutiny and the people to be more aware of the reality of what's out there. But again, none of us seem to have the time or the patience to investigate is, are the companies entering into contracts with cities and counties for these traffic citation issuing camera systems. Because it's like, again, it's recorded and it, it isn't like it's recorded onto a tape, it's right. digital. So right. it's it shows up in the computer in Arizona. But what did, how did they get that contract? Who did they meet with? How much money changed hands? What was the financial incentive? How much money's coming into the city? How much money is the company in Arizona getting? Uh, for supplying the equipment and issuing the citations. And did they change the length of the yellow light in order to cause more citations to get issued, right? Did they- Great point. Are, are the cameras calibrated in a way that actually captures the scene in real time or is it made longer or shorter uh, for any of the speeding? Uh, and it's, there's just too many ways where it's the government trying to do we gotcha. And right, what are you going right. to do about it? Okay, maybe the, maybe people are running yellow lights occasionally. And you don't want an intersection accident where somebody ran a red light. Okay, of no course. question. But is this system actually reducing that at all? Is that it? Somebody needs to audit and study. If it's not, then quit doing it because you're only doing it for the money. And, and again, the people that are hurts the most are the people who can afford it the least. Mm. Right? That's so I never thought about it that way. Yeah, I mean, look, traffic citations are um, reverse. Uh, what's there's there's a term, economic term, and a justice term about it too. But the person that has money pays a speeding ticket because you can pay it online and never leave your house. You just oh, I got you get a parking ticket. You just pay the ticket. You know, the parking meter wasn't working, but so you park there, but it wouldn't take your money. Well, it's a digital meter. And you got to prove it. Uh, it's $35 fine, but 70 if you don't pay it by a certain date. Right, so it's, right. it's, it's money driven. And again, uh, maybe the real problem isn't that, that counties and cities and states and the federal government want more money. It's that they're all spending more money than they need to be spending. And that's where they need to cut back so the demand the desire for money is lessened um, in a different world, higher education, uh, or just actually K-12 education. The amount of money being spent is disproportionate to the amount of education being delivered to students. Why? Because they're paying higher salaries and, and benefits and wages to administrators in school systems. Um, everything I've read says, that the money that keeps going to the schools doesn't deliver education to the kids. What it, and it really doesn't pay the teachers more either. Or they don't hire more teachers. They hire more 
administrators, more you know, assistant principals and principals and superintendents and up that chain because they can and they, they're the ones deciding on their budget and the school board always says, yeah, let's do it. And the parents are like, it's for the kids. So uh, the federal government says, you know, look at our current, current proposed um, reconciliation bill for $3.5 trillion. It's like, I mean, I, I'm not in favor of any, any bill unless you go through it and say, well, wait a minute, is this actually the proper role of government to do this or to incentivize this or to, to make this happen? And why are we spending that money here on, on that? Um, but, but our legislators don't do that and our cities don't do it and our counties don't do that. So, um, you know, I, I do think the drive for money whether again conscious or subconsciously drives a lot of our criminal justice system because it's uh yeah pay this fine and be on probation the probation office gets paid money to go there in this uh, hey really off topic but here, here's a and maybe we'll end up closing sure. with this um a few decades ago uh, the speaker of the house uh republican authored a bill called the defense of marriage act in essence, saying marriage is between man and a woman. And um, 15 or 20 years later, uh, I think his name was Bob Barr. I, and I've met Bob, disclaimer, I've met Bob Barr. I know him. I think he ran, he, I know he did. He ran for the, as a libertarian candidate for president of the USA. But he wrote that article about, uh, he wrote the Defense of Marriage Act and he was um, very keen on getting it enacted, which it did with the Republican controlled House and Senate, and I think the presidency. Fast forward years later, he's a libertarian. And he wrote an article that I thought was, was insightful. He admitted, terrible act, Defense of Marriage Act, never should have written it, never should have passed it. And he, but here's why. And he gave the history of the marriage license, that up until the late 1800s, there wasn't such a thing as a marriage license. And you wanted to get married, you got married. Nobody told you who you could and who you couldn't marry. You just got married according to whatever faith you had or no faith. You know, okay, you want to be married? Sure, I'm married. So now you're married. But then people in government decided, well, we want to control who marries whom. So we're going to make you, we're going to pass a law that says you have to get a license. But to get the license, you have to pay a marriage license application fee. It wasn't much. But now you had to have a marriage application license clerk who accepted the license application and who then processed it. So they had to hire people and the hire the people they needed to pay them to pay them, they needed money. So they added on more taxes or more fees to the application. And basically what he's saying is once you start paying money to government and they, you know, whether it's your car tag or this property tax and this and that, and they create an agency, they're never going to give that money back or dismantle that agency so they kept taking the money. So we have marriage licenses that, so government's telling people who can and cannot get married. And his attitude was, whether you think um, two people of the same gender should be allowed to marry, shouldn't even be a US Supreme Court decision. Government, government shouldn't be telling anybody who they can marry. It shouldn't be a government issue at all. I agree. You know, and therefore, if you look at our tax code, if you look at survivor benefits and this and that, maybe some of that stuff should be done without, in some ways, saying we think people should be married 
or we treat married people differently than unmarried people or couples or if we would have government quit trying to micromanage so many things then we would have less conflict we again we we don't need marriage licenses you know oh what what but what if two cousins marry i don't know who cares <laughs> um, other than them those two the marry and their friends and family right i mean i, I i'm not sure we need oh well, how about young people uh exploitation uh, okay um i don't know so i mean i don't know how we go to controlling every aspect of our behavior in a sure. a society that otherwise um professes that it's a free society right yeah no y'all you're right you're right there's a lot of conflict yeah you're right and that leads me to my last two questions of okay. course i'm going to announce what they are and then okay. so the first is your what you your advice would be to young men and women looking to get into law or the criminal justice system and the last question is how any listeners current or future can get in contact with parents usa if they need help and also how they can donate as well okay thank so, you I, well i appreciate both questions oh please uh, let, let, let me let me start with the uh how how to get into law um for probably or, or just advice to any young law students or people who are looking to get into law just advice life advice law advice whatever advice you want to share uh for about 10 years plus i have participated and volunteered to uh, be part of the law school orientation at uh, Georgia State University Law School and Atlanta's John Marshall Law School. Part of the orientation is to go through ethics and professionalism, hypotheticals and the rules and laws that govern lawyers in terms of ethics and professionalism. And at the, each of those incoming classes of law students and the small group that I end up um, addressing is somewhere between 10 and 15 new students and both at Georgia State and at John Marshall Atlanta Atlanta's John Marshall Law School sometimes those students are not just out of college they've worked and they're going to evening school or uh, married got kids and they work a full-time job so they may be anywhere from 22 up to 40 50. Um, and usually what I tell them actually every time I always tell them it's not too late you don't have to go to law school and you might be happier in your life if you don't go to law school. Wow. Um, law school provides a certain level of um, intellectual training uh, that skews your brain in a way that allows you to do what lawyers need to do. But as a person in society, it makes you capable, at least, of overanalyzing everything, arguing with anybody and everything, uh, finding inconsistencies, and it's, it's um, as my teenage son used the phrase, ignorance is bliss. Sometimes it's better not to be so insightful, so decisive, so deconstructing everything that comes across your plate that is supposed to be recreational and not work, but it, you can't help it because your brain now works differently. Um, it's a blessing and a curse uh, to, to have that kind of a thought process. Uh, but it's it's difficult. It, imagine being a medical doctor and knowing everything there is to know about germs and viruses and about nutrition, and you almost get creeped out about everything, right? So right. I, I don't know, but 
doctors have to figure out how to calm that side. As a lawyer, you have to figure out how to kind of let things go. And as especially a young lawyer, it's hard to do because you just got all, you have all this training and knowledge. Um, the other is I happen to think law is one of the most fascinating uh, academic studies. But in practice, it is one of the most taxing intellectually and physically taxing because I'm exhausted at the end of every day from the thinking. Um, and then you're battling with people all the time. Nobody's really on the same side, not in the work I do. Everybody's battling. Uh, I will say adoptions are an area where people are on the same side. And that's usually wonderful. But still, there's red tape up the yin-yang that you have to do for government purposes. Um, and, but in rare, rare occasions is, uh, in the law, are you not having somebody battle with you? Your own clients are fighting with you uh, about whether take your advice, not take your, follow your direction, do this or do that. But it's their life. I tell them, it's your life, your kids, your family, your business. It's up for you to decide. I'm here just to advise, counsel, and help make the outcome be what you want it to be if I can. Um, but our society doesn't make the law that easy. So uh, it, it, it's if you have a choice between being an airline pilot or a lawyer, be an airline pilot, because when you land your plane and walk away from the airport, you're done. And there's not a not anything on your desk to turn in in two weeks to a, a judge or a case that you're getting ready to try that you need to be preparing for. Um, that may sound chicken, but I'm saying <laughs> as a youngster, I did not consider the lifestyle. So I go back to um, advice for anybody, whatever profession you choose, whatever direction you choose, choose what makes you excited about every day to the extent work is exciting. I've always said, I wonder if for, uh, you know, the Tiger Woods of the world, um, golf was fun, but when it became work, is it less fun? Mm. Uh, it, you know, if you're doing it to make a living, is it different than you're doing it for the fun of it, the activity, whatever it is? Yeah. You're a game show. You're a game show host. Oh, it'd be so exciting to be a game show host. Yeah. Not if it was, that's how you made your living right, and every you day. Pressure okay. <laughs> and somebody was scrutinizing your performance and you're subject to being canned and this. And so um, be careful what you wish for. So that the big thing I'd say is the law is an academic, as an academic, so these wonderful, it'll change you in ways that'll make you more, um, more difficult to get along with everybody in, in our society because most of the people don't think the way, process information the way you do. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying it'll be different. Uh, and then um, it, it also is a lifestyle that always, there's never a time you go on vacation and there's nothing on your desk ever. You know, it, in the corporate world, hypothetically, when you leave somebody or you're a nurse in a hospital, when you leave, somebody else is taking care of the patients. You know, I always joked with my Duke guys who are, who are doctors, like, and, hey, you have it easier. And they're like, oh, no, this and this. And I go, look, when you're not on call, when you're gone, somebody else is on call. They're, if something happens to your patient at the hospital, they show up, right? So, uh, or when your office hours ends, you're more or less done. But it's debatable. Um, so, and the other is um, if you believe that your rights as a parent or your children's rights as a member of your family are, are being infringed, violated, intruded, um, visit our website, which is parentsusa.org. Parents USA, parents with an S, parentsusa.org. Uh, there's a page where you can fill out a form to request help, uh, or you send an email to help 
H-E-L-P, at parentsusa.org. Uh, there's also um, links on our website uh, where you can go to a donate page and donate you know, a monthly amount, $5 a month, a dollar a month, or, or more. Uh, and you, Or you can make a one-time donation. And uh, we certainly hope people do and help fund our, so we can grow. We want to grow to be more influential in policy making and more influential in how the laws are uh, enacted and, and uh, remain on the books and, and then enforced uh, for the betterment of our society. This isn't about protecting parents from doing wrong. This is about protecting parents from the over intrusion of society and telling parents what they must do or what they cannot do rather than go, hey, as long as you don't hurt your kid, you make the decision. After all, it's your child. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd like to add as an added incentive that your company is a 501c, which means that. C3. You have to add that. 501c3. C3. Um, so for people looking to donate larger amounts, just even now in the future, can they write it off? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not providing tax advice. Sure, sure. But for each individual, check with your tax consultant. But I will say um, we've had get in touch with us, ask for our uh, FEIN, Federal Employee Identification Number. Uh, they verify with the IRS website that we're a 501c3 okay. and their clients uh, have made donations. So uh, I, I believe everybody needs to determine for their, their own tax purposes the extent of deductibility because depending on your tax bracket and whether you itemize or not and such, um, it may or may not be. But I, as a 501c3, we're in the same category as you know, the Red Cross and, and right. other charities that are um, that are out there um, tax exempt um, nonprofits. Right? Okay, I just wanted to just point that out as an added incentive yeah. because look, don't you can donate and you can you know talk to your tax person and I'm sure you can get the money back. Um, yeah. And then lastly, actually, I just wanted to quickly ask you before we wrap up, what is the vision? Because again, I really love what Parents USA represents, especially from someone uh, from, from someone as, as accomplished as you are um, and being the face of it. So what is the vision? It could be the, the short-term vision or the long-term vision. Can you just let, quickly share what, or not, you don't have oh, to sure. quickly share it, yeah. but can you just share what your vision is? It, uh, the, the idea is this is not about me. This is about our, our country and all the parents and all the kids in our country who need the constant watchdog of an organization with enough clout, uh, membership numbers, which are represents voters, um, logic and rational thinking and lawyering uh, and funding to allow the type of work I'm talking about, which is policymaking with executives of government, um, from the president to the governors to agency heads and legislation, and to be able to um, then a lobby, but also to provide uh, benefits and discounts and, and the like as we grow in numbers, so that like other large organizations that have associations and memberships, we can negotiate for a member rate, life insurance and health insurance and car insurance and discounts at restaurants and the like. Uh, some other organizations have 
the AARP's done a great job, regardless of what one they think of AARP's policies, positions, and um, lobbying efforts. AARP has 37 million members, and therefore, they get a lot done. That's why they're powerful. Uh, there are more parents than there are older Americans. Uh, so we can grow. And then, like every other human on earth, one day I'm going to pass. Um, our board will consistently change over with new blood, uh, younger blood, and uh, with the same vision of just looking out for the parents and um, let our board decide how we'll, we'll do it. But the main mission is protect the constitutional rights of parents and their children. So it, it's something that I expect will grow and be here 100 years from now. And everybody that donates now, thank you in advance, uh, will help us um, accelerate that growth. Uh, and and that would be wonderful. And I appreciate uh, you having me on. Oh, please don't mention it. Um, on that note, thank you again. I really appreciate you joining. Uh, it really does uh, mean a lot. And again, I, I wanted you to just come on because I love the amazing work that you guys are doing at Parents USA. It's very unique, in my opinion, and um, it needs to have a platform, as many platforms as possible. May I make one more one more comment, Michael? Please. The the uh, backdrop that I have for um, this interview that I use often says hashtag Justice for Black Parents. Uh, it's because we're in tune with uh, parents of color around the USA, who again, as I mentioned briefly in one of our discussions. Uh, are subjected to greater levels of scrutiny uh, by unnecessarily so, by the way, uh, than our non uh, parents of color. That doesn't mean that we don't care about the non color people, the white people, and, right. and their parenting, the Asian people, the white people. <clears throat> we want to look out for all parents and all children uh, by looking out, and this is true across the board in our society in terms of criminal justice reform. If we're reforming criminal justice system to address the systemic racism that has persisted and has still exists, we're, we're affecting the criminal justice system for the good for everybody. So it's not exclusive to one group of parents or not. We just think that there does need to be some attention paid um, and pointed out that um, parents of color are subjected to an unnecessarily greater scrutiny uh, for the same activities, same behavior, same situations. Sure, sure. No, I love that. Thank you for clarifying because I know um, there are people that love drama that would say, well, how about the other parents? You know, how about the white parents? Although who are, you know, Asian parents, like you said. So I, I love that you pointed out the fact that, look, we're here for everyone. Um, it's, it's justice for all parents, but- yeah, you know, if not to make light of it, but if I were to put justice for tall parents, that doesn't mean short parents don't, don't get any attention. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're all alike in the regard with regard to we're parents. Um, we may differ in how we look, how tall we are, what gender we are, which is also like, we don't distinguish between adoptive parents and biological parents or legal parents and not between mothers and fathers. We're parents. So sure. we're trying to do um, the same right thing by the U.S. Constitution across the board, across the USA. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. And on that note, again, thank you so much for, for joining. I, I want to say publicly, you have, uh, you have the open invitation uh, to, 
our, our platform here or anytime you want to come on and, and discuss anything near and dear to your heart. Um, because again, I know you guys are doing amazing work. So thank you for joining and uh, look forward to chatting with you on the podcast again in the near future. Again, thank you for having me on, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you.